At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. We are here with Sarah Vallely, mindfulness teacher, coach, and author. Sarah has been teaching meditation and mindfulness for the past two decades, training and certifying others to teach mindfulness. Sarah is the author of four books. Her latest book is titled Tame, Soothe, Dwell, The 55 Teachings of TSD Mindfulness. On today's episode, we discuss ways to use self-compassion in your life to minimize rumination and ways to use self-compassion to minimize self-critical thinking. And we also discuss the role that anger plays in our life. I'm Jacob DeRosset. We are here with Sarah Vallely. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great, Jacob. Thank you. We are going to talk about self-compassion today, and it's such an important topic that I like to dedicate an episode to self-compassion about every 10 episodes. We address it in a little bit different way each time. But just to get us on the same page, the definition of self-compassion is being warm and understanding toward ourselves when we suffer, fail, feel inadequate instead of being self-critical. When I teach classes on self-compassion, I really emphasize in my definition of self-compassion that we, we wish for ourselves not to devalue ourselves. The devaluing process is thinking that you're lesser of a person, putting yourself down and just taking a breath and saying to ourselves, I really wish for myself not to do that is just such a great first step in your self-compassion practice. Some people do not want to use self-compassion because they believe it's saying that my problem is more important than other people's problems. Or they might not want to use self-compassion because they think that it will make them weaker in some way. It'll make them less ambitious, which is actually totally not true. The research shows that that's not true. I always had some type of subliminal aversion to it. I couldn't always pinpoint exactly what it was. I guess it kind of was like, I feel very comfortable with myself, like being who I am. I feel like authentic. You know, I don't feel like I put on a facade or anything. And so I guess I kind of equated that to being like, okay, I have good self-compassion. But then when I actually started practicing self-compassion, I realized, oh, wow, I actually don't have very much self-compassion at all. And for some reason, I have this odd aversion to it. I hear you when you say, I sometimes don't want to practice self-compassion and I can't really point why that is. And that's actually what we're going to do today. I'm going to reveal, uncover some of these deep unconscious reasons why we feel like we can't practice it. Oh, I love stuff like this. Being self-critical, devaluing yourself, having shame and not feeling worthy are all best addressed with self-compassion. I'm going to use the term self-critical, self-criticism a lot, but I'm really talking about all of these. Uh, some people self-criticize to anticipate other people criticizing them. Uh, they might believe if they verbally put themselves down in front of other people, then other people won't put themselves down, uh, either in their heads or, or aloud. Uh, so that's, that's one reason. The most common reasoning for people being self-critical 
um, is that when we were children, we were criticized by our parents. And then we took on the role of criticizing ourselves to avoid further criticism from our parents. So let me say that again. When we were children, we were criticized by our parents. And then we took on the role of criticizing ourselves to avoid getting criticized by our parents. That's interesting. Yeah, I connect with that. Yeah, it's like if we criticize ourselves more than the people around us might be criticizing us, then we feel like on some level we're better off. In either case, it means that we are self-critical because we want to avoid pain and suffering. If, say, we do want to avoid pain and suffering, is being self-critical the best way to do it? Are there alternative ways to avoiding pain and suffering or addressing, dealing with pain and suffering outside of being self-critical? Because there's a lot of downsides to being self-critical. Another reason that we do it is it's about control. We think that we can control ourselves from making a mistake if we are self-critical. We think that we can control ourselves from making a mistake if we are self-critical. The bigger question, can we really control ourselves from making a mistake? Is it possible to be perfect? I don't think so. So putting so much pressure on ourselves not to make a mistake is unhealthy. Could you define what being self-critical means? Being critical means that we are having a judgment about something that we did or something that's going on in our life or something about our personality or character. This criticism is the type of criticism that makes you think you're not good enough. If you weren't this way, then you would be better. You'd be a better person or you'd be better off. So you end up feeling like you're not good enough. I can hear people listening to this saying, well, if I'm not self-critical, then I'm just going to be apathetic or I'm just going to be complicit in my neuroses. So, you know, what would you say to someone who's having that experience right now? We think, well, if we don't have this pressure that we're putting on ourselves, then we're not going to go to work or we're not going to do a good job at work or we're not going to be a good parent. And the research, according to Kristen Neff, that's not true. If you take a group of people and you teach them self-compassion practice, they end up being better at work. They end up being better parents. It doesn't take away. And, and why is that? I think that's because you become more empathetic. You are more in your heart. You are more connected to what you're doing. You're more connected to the present moment. And when you do all of that, you're just going to be better at whatever it is that you decide to do. Can you buy into that? Yeah, quite obviously, yeah. When I read this in Kristen Neff's book recently, this idea that the reason that we are self-critical is because we want to avoid pain and suffering made me take a pause. Like I, I just hadn't thought about it that way. And it really just restructured a lot of the ways that I think about this. You want to avoid having your boss be disappointed in you, right? That would be pain and suffering. So if I tell myself, you didn't do that right, you didn't do that well enough, you didn't do it fast enough, I guess what it is, is it's just kind of stepping into this other world, this other realm, since you weren't down on yourself about it, that maybe you created space in your experience to 
adds something to the project that maybe you wouldn't have thought about. Maybe it opens up your creativity. Maybe it opens up your flow. And there's just a new, great, wonderful twist to the project. And then your boss ends up being like doubly happy. If you could give us an example of you're in your workday and you're doing something. And give us an example of a self-critical thought and then redirecting that and then getting out of the self-criticism. So if you could lead us through what that, that process would be like. So you're at work and you have a project that you need to complete for your boss and you've started into it. You didn't get something quite right and it's going to add you know, extra half hour to your work on it. And so you just get really down on yourself. Well, gosh, why did I do that? I should have been smarter about that. And now I've like added a whole nother half hour to this thing that I got to get done in two hours. And gosh, I'm just such an idiot. I'm so stupid. And then on a deep level, that's like, I'm not good enough just the way I am. Um, I'm lesser than my colleagues. You might even start comparing yourself to your siblings. My siblings wouldn't do this. They're smarter than me. I just goes into this whole spiral. And so the first thing is to notice that that's happening, being mindful of where your thoughts are at. I think the best thing to do is to name it because if you can name the type of thinking that you're in, you disengage to it. And then the self-compassion part is I'm human. I make mistakes in the big picture of all of this. I'm loved and worthy no matter how this turns out. I've always struggled with things like I am worthy and and even saying I am loved. I've always struggled with that. And again, it could be because of my depth of lack of self-compassion is so deep. Something that my therapist had said that was really, really powerful. That and then something I heard from Ram Dass. So something my therapist had said was, he was like, do you ever just laugh at yourself? I was like taking myself very seriously. And I was kind of like, well, no, because this is serious. People are counting on me, blah, 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 you know, stuff like that. He's like, the older you get, the more you're just like, oh, wow, I said that. How about that? And uh, that was very powerful for me to be like, oh, wow, it's so. And then but something Ram Dass had said is that he was a connoisseur of his neuroses. And I loved that as like, take this witness approach to things that you do and then to laugh about it and to say, okay, well, why am I taking myself so seriously in this moment? When I'm doing a loving kindness meditation, I say those things to other people. I'll say, you are loved, you're worthy of love, may you have peace. But when it came to myself, it all of a sudden got very silly. So I had to change that language and that was crucial for me. So I just wanted to say that if somebody was about to turn the podcast off <laughs> because of that deep aversion that we have for some reason. What you're explaining that laughing at yourself, I don't consider that self-compassion. I'm really glad that's something that works for you. The positive part of that is because it lightens the energy around it. And it does allow you to take whatever's happening less seriously. It's like, oh, in the big scheme of things, this is just one little thing. And those are all wonderful things. But truly a self-compassion practice involves three aspects. One is the mindfulness, mindful that you are in that type of thinking, but it also includes kindness so I guess that's debatable. The laughing at yourself, is that a kind gesture? For some people, that might not feel kind. And then the third aspect of self-compassion is the acknowledgement that we're human. We're having a human experience. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. So working those three aspects together is a really healthy self-compassion practice for yourself. So I got another question that we can kind of consider around this is how does our culture and our religion play a role in being self-critical. And so I'm going to share some information that 
I read in one of Kristen Neff's book. In Taiwan, their culture is based on Confucianism. And according to her, I'm not an expert in this, but there involves some level of being self-critical in that type of religion. And statistically, people in Taiwan are more self-critical than those of us in the U.S. In Thailand, which is more Buddhist, and I think we can fairly say is a religion that is based in not being self-critical, statistically, the people in Thailand are less self-critical than those of us in the U.S. So that shows that religion, culture, national culture does play a role in how self-critical we are. And so that brings up the question, does Christianity, since we're, I guess, predominantly a Christian nation, a role in being self-critical? And I know that's a really touchy subject. I I think Christianity has one of the best anti-shame stories. However, I think for a lot of people is not an anti-shame story. So I do think that Christianity could play a role in our country being as self-critical as it is. I did not identify with the concept of original sin. And I really kind of always disliked that notion versus the Buddhist teaching of like original face and Buddha nature. That one always seemed more peaceful to me. And I liked that that idea that we all have this very positive thing that we can slip into and it's there already. It's kind of like our personality and all that stuff is the clothes, but the nakedness of our personality is that that nature of when we were children and innocent and everything just gets layered on top of it instead of the idea that I'm some station of, of evil and sin and nature and things. But again, this is where I grew up and all the things that I heard. So it's not a broad brushstroke about Christianity as a whole. So once I heard the Buddhist teachings, I was like, okay, this I, this is something I can get behind. Appreciate you sharing that. We don't want to sound on this podcast like we're aligned in a certain way, but just taking pause and, and thinking about it in your own psyche, your own set of beliefs, what role that you think that the culture and religion of our country might play on us being self-critical. And I also wonder about the Puritan mindset. Our country is very founded on this, this Puritan mindset, and that is very much about working hard and persevering and being tough. And so I think that might play a role too. I've always felt like it's easier to give compassion to somebody else because I think with yourself, you're just so aware of everything you've ever done that's wrong. Everybody has an insane person in their head that follows them around room to room yelling at them, basically. It's kind of what it seems like for me anyways. There was some teacher that the monks would come up to them and say, I think I'm enlightened. I think I've reached Nibbana. And then they were like, okay, go spend a week with your family and come back and tell me if you feel like you're still enlightened. So I think that there's like a thing with proximity that your guards get pulled down and your family is like an extension of yourself, basically. I think that that difficulty is kind of broadcasted towards yourself a bit. But then I think once you break that seal and start to feel it and experience it for yourself and see how much better you feel when you start to be compassionate towards yourself, It's easier for us to show compassion to others than ourselves. When I help people with self-compassion in my private sessions, I begin with an activity that is centered on giving compassion to others as a warm-up because it's hard to jump right into giving compassion to yourself. I keep mentioning Kristen Neff's books, and there's two. One of them is called Self-Compassion, and the other one is called Fierce Self-Compassion. She shares some research and she says that the discrepancy between being able to give compassion to others and giving compassion to yourself 
is much higher in women than in men. What that research is showing is that it's much easier for women to give compassion to someone else and much easier compared to giving it to themselves compared to men. But I know this has been a real struggle for you too. I know that men deal with this also. The reasoning she gives is because girls are raised to forgo their needs for others. Uh, but you know, I read that and I thought, well, I feel like men are taught the same thing. So maybe this discrepancy or this difference between males and females is more of a neurological level. I, I, don't, I don't know. In Kristen Neff's second book called Fierce Compassion, she really talks a lot about how having a self-compassion practice does not mean you can't be angry. My thoughts about anger are anger is a natural emotion, so don't ever put yourself down for being angry. It is a natural emotion. However, most of the time, anger gets us stuck. If we're angry, we can't heal. However, there are occasional benefits to being angry. Angry is beneficial if it pushes us to act on our behalf. Anger is beneficial if anger allows us to have agency for ourselves or to advocate for ourselves. But I don't consider that to be actually healing. It is beneficial, but not healing. I do sometimes encourage my clients to, to lean into their anger and let the anger out because based on the dynamics that they're in, that's really going to be helpful for them. There's not too many occasions in which anger is completely necessary. The physiological response to anger is pretty short. It's the story that we tell ourselves that perpetuates it usually, but you can't not get angry at things. If you see injustice and stuff around you, you're going to be upset about it. And that's a natural thing. But the story that you tell yourself in traffic is not anger. That's a story, I think. That's kind of always been my perspective on it. Doubling down on it is still a story. Telling yourself all the reasons you need to not be angry is a story. And instead, letting go and being like, okay, yeah, that was wrong. And now what can I do about it? And then go into plan mode or fix mode or whatever you need to potentially fix the thing is, is okay. When you see an atrocity, you see oppression and that causes you to be angry. I think that's one of those times when anger is helpful, helpful for the human race. But you were talking about the story. Yeah. I mean, that's the key, right? Is we're angry, but can we also be mindful of the story that's in our heads when we're angry? Whether that story about all the reasons why you shouldn't be angry, or whether that story is about, I need to have revenge on this person. I'm blaming this person. Can we just experience the anger with out that story. And one of the ways that we can do that is really move into the body and notice how am I feeling this anger in my body? Do I feel it in my forehead? Do I feel it in my chest, my shoulders? So Kristen F., this is something that she says I find completely fascinating, is that self-compassion takes us out of rumination when we're angry and allows us to be more effective when we are angry. Can you give an example of what that's like? Basically, you're upset with your partner because you don't feel heard and you're feeling really dismissed and misunderstood. And so you give yourself compassion. You might say, this is a difficult situation. It's understandable. I'm upset. Even though I feel dismissed, I'm loved and I'm worthy of love. Right. And then we move out of that rumination because that's what the self-compassion does is it just quiets that rumination. And then because we're not in that rumination, we're more just in the authenticity of the anger, then the idea is, is then we will take action to 
advocate for ourselves, to, to take action, to speak up, whatever it is that maybe we need to speak up about. Interesting. Yeah. I refer this back to like nonviolent communication. It's like a form of self-compassion because the issue is in your relationship, you're not being heard. Well, then if you're not identifying what emotions it is that you're feeling, then you're also not being heard with yourself either. So this is a way in which you can listen to yourself and then say, what is it that I want to say or have to say? Or how is it that I can ask the other person in a way in which they'll hear me and, and not be demanding? Because if you're demanding, people won't listen to you ultimately. Yeah. You cannot advocate for yourself if you can't even hear yourself and show up for yourself. I wasn't even aware of my internal dialogue for years and years and years. And I still get out of that a lot too, where it's just happening and I'm not aware of it. If you're listening to this and thinking, well, I don't even know what the voice in my head is like. That's where sitting comes in. And then having a practice to start identifying what that is, instead of identifying with it, then you can start to do that in your day-to-day life. So I want to go back to that. You know, We do have new listeners, so other people may be unaware of this. If this is your first time listening, that that's really the crucial point is you have to start sitting to, to be able to pay attention enough to be like, oh, that is my voice in there telling me these things. It's commanding my actions. And now I can listen to that voice and then choose to ignore it sometimes if I need to. As far as anger, I think the last thing I'll say about that is that anger is a good option if action is more important than healing. So if taking action to protect yourself or to confront somebody is more important than having deep healing, then anger is probably appropriate. The answer in self-improvement spaces is always you need to do more. You need to make less excuses. You need to get up earlier. You need to hold yourself accountable. And a lot of times the answer in mindfulness spaces is you need to do less. You need to let go. You need to accept. But there is appropriate times for both. If you are experiencing anger and telling yourself to always let go and then to not take action, that's not going to change your situation. I love when you bring up the dichotomy of that space, that there are times to act and there are times to accept and and they're not mutually exclusive and they're both important. We do have a few other episodes that are dedicated to self-compassion. One of them is episode 21 and the title of that is Why Self-Validation is the New Self-Compassion. And during that episode, we talk a lot about how self-validation can reduce stress. And then in episode 11, titled Self-Compassion for Those Moments When We Need It Most, we explore typical circumstances when we need to give ourselves compassion. And we explain the benefits of considering compassion as a mental process instead of an emotional process. We absolutely appreciate every single listener that we have. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram, definitely check us out. On Instagram, we are aware underscore mind underscore podcast. The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD mindfulness production. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, and D as in dwell. Mind as in mindfulness.org. Check out our blog post for this episode with links to supplemental information such as worksheets you can use to put into practice the mindfulness skills shared in this episode. Also, please sign up for our newsletter and receive mindfulness tips. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at aware underscore mind underscore podcast. Thank you.